Um, yeah, so I, my wife, Nicole, and I, we do lead the youth group here. Um, and next Sunday, we're actually going to do a little party for, uh, so if you got a, a kid in middle school or high school and you want to come out to that, it would be, it's going to be after church here at Wren, so we'd love to have you. Um, I was, uh, I was supposed to preach in October, and unfortunately, Nicole's mom was very sick, so I had to drop that, and, um, and then I was supposed to preach the first week of December, um, and then John asked me to switch, so, uh, you guys have avoided having to hear the youth minister preach for six months, um, now it comes to bear on you, but, uh, but I'm, I'm blessed to be able to do this, so it's Advent, so we have these themes, today's theme is peace, I wanted to do an intro on peace um, in which I told you, you know, about chaos and anxiety and all the anxiety in the world, but I don't think I need to do that because you all know anxiety and you know those who are struggling with anxiety. But I want to give you three things, three reasons for peace today. First reason, um, God's violence. Second reason, God's communion. And the third reason is God's harvest. So God's violence, God's communion, and God's harvest. Three reasons why you can have peace this Christmas. So if you want to open up your Bibles to Isaiah 27, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 27, 1 through 6. Isaiah 27. Isaiah is a big uh, prophetic book in the Old Testament. Isaiah 27, 1 through 6. Okay. All right, we're just going to start. We're go, we'll just do, uh, go through it um, throughout the message. So we'll start in verse 1. And verse 1 says this. In that day... The Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. God makes violence against the chaos that plagues his people. The Hebraic Hebrew vision of the sea was not a great one. Um, the commentators that I could find that talked about it said the sea was kind of an image of chaos and turmoil. You'd imagine uh, Near Eastern uh, Jews that were desert wanderers uh, would get out on the sea and within a moment, uh, a storm could come and change everything. Uh, that's kind of, might seem a little silly to us because ever since James Cameron discovered the Titanic in, in Titanic, we don't really have that same relationship with the ocean. The ocean 
Um, and, and it still it can be a little scary, right? I mean, we can go out swimming, but you'd imagine for a people that don't have modern technology when it comes to boats or submarines, the sea was a scary place. It was a place where your nephew might go out on a fishing trip to bring back food for the family and never come back, and you don't know where he'd go. Um, also, um, we read in this first verse about Lethot, Leviathan. Leviathan was uh, an image of chaos. Um, in other Near Eastern cultures, the, the idea or vision of Leviathan was as a chaotic monster that would cause trouble uh, for, for seafarers and just people in general. Um, so we can't relate necessarily exactly to Leviathan um, and the deep fear of the sea and chaos that surrounds its mystery. Um, but we know chaos, right? We know the feeling, some of us know the feeling of, of getting a phone call that it is cancer. We know the feeling of losing loved ones to drugs, to overdoses. We know the feeling of raising children in the church and in the Lord, some of us, who are rebellious and refuse to follow Jesus. We know the feeling of being deceived or cheated by mental illness. Some of us know the feeling of what it is to uh, have same-sex attraction and, um, and not know what to do with that and being afraid to talk to other people about it, maybe other people in your church. We all know the feeling of what it is to be in a world that feels like it's in some way ordered, but then have things that are completely in chaos. Brothers and sisters, this is chaos. Now, for thousands of years, philosophers have actually discussed, is the universe ordered or is it chaotic? And I think that even before we read the Bible, a sensible answer is, it's yes, it's both. The universe is both ordered and chaotic. But when we read the Bible and when we read the prophet Isaiah, we see that the chaos which plagues the life of God's people will one day soon come to an abrupt, crashing, and violent end. This is what it means to be a son or daughter of God. God protects his children and he punishes chaos that plagues them. Isaiah is not making a veiled threat made by a dad who watches while his child is bullied on the playground. This verse here, verse 1, is a looked forward to promise by an almighty king who enjoys eradicating evil. Skip ahead to verse 4. 
read what God's, what God's heart is. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. The God of the Bible, whether we like it or not, has a lust for destroying wickedness. That doesn't really fit our Western, educated, largely white culture, does it? We tend to shackle the God of Isaiah. We are like the early people in Genesis, outside the ark, mocking as the rain begins to fall. Our philosophies attempt to put handcuffs on God because evil exists. The phrasing goes like this. I just can't believe in the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is fine. Beatitudes are great. But the God of the Old Testament is too barbaric, too archaic. You're telling me the punishment for my sin is so-called death? Or my so-called sin is death? But then we say other things like this. How can a good God allow such evil in the world? How can we do that? How can we, at one, in one hand, say, God, God of the Old Testament, we just don't need you. We don't need you. We don't need your punishment of evil, of wickedness. We're good. And then on the other hand, we say, well, we have a real problem with evil, and the problem is God, that he allows it to exist. Folks, I want to say clearly through the prophet Isaiah, God hates evil. Sometimes the best response for someone who's suffered and, and can't come to God because of it is to say, wow, I'm sorry. God is with you in your suffering, and he's not okay with what you've gone through. He's not okay with sin. He's not okay with evil. But my most frustrated, the most frustrated I get when I hear these kind of philosophical handcuffs that we put on God goes something like this. I just can't believe in a God who would kill his only son. That's cosmic child abuse. Not according to Isaiah. Isaiah says it like this. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, in the most freely chosen act of human history, chose the cross when we chose rebellion and chaos. Folks, there is evil and chaos in this world. And if we are like so many in the city around us, fashioning a God who fits neatly into our sexual preferences and our politics and our endless obsession with us, God's destruction 
of chaos will not be peaceful. But if we find ourselves in the shadow of Christ's cross, tears in our eyes saying, why me, God? The destruction of the world's chaos will be the most freeing, peace-giving experience imaginable. Your joy will make angelic beings jealous because of the countenance of your faces. It will be unlike anything any of the universe has ever experienced when we come face to face with a God who destroys our chaos finally and forever. Point two, second reason why you can have peace this Christmas, God's communion. Let's take a look at verse two. Uh, We're going to look at actually verse two through five. I'll just read it before we start. I fashion myself as someone who likes to preach out of the Bible, and I don't even have a Bible up here. I'm I'm looking it up real quick, so just give me a second. Um, it's funny how we see ourselves so differently than how we actually are. Okay, verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. So now we've, we've seen God destroying the chaos of the world around us. Slippery serpent is dead, and now we're stepping into communion and fellowship with him in verses 2 through 5. Once we've allowed the swords of God's word to cut through the chaos that plagues our thoughts, talked about some of the philosophical reasons why keep us from coming to know God, problems with evil, problems with his character. Once God's word cuts through all that, and I'm praying that today the spirit would because I know I'm a broken person. This is a hard message in some ways. But once God cuts through all of that and we become Christ's, a relationship called communion happens. Now communion in the Oxford Dictionary is described as as this. A close relationship with someone in which feelings and thoughts are exchanged. I don't love that definition of communion for the church, but I think it aptly describes to where we are as a society. Think of how and why we form our relationships, right? We follow people online. Why? Well, because they're funny or offer good insight to us or post pretty pictures. We gather in groups. Why? Because we share similar political or sociological or even religious sentiments. 
right? We gather along lines of shared likes. We fall in love and get married. Why? Because the person completes us or is compatible, fulfills our wants or desires. This is not how Isaiah envisions communion. The Lord is far more involved than merely exchanging feelings or thoughts or sharing common ground with his church. Notice how he describes caring for his church as a vineyard. Verse 3, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Do you see that? He protects her. Every moment I water it, he nourishes her body, keeping her alive and vital. I keep it night and day. Verse 4, I have no wrath. What an alternative to the dragon slasher in verse 1. He is kind, he is sweet, he is gentle, and he gives himself for her protection and nourishment. Communion in the Bible involves blood being poured out and bodies being broken because life sustains life. There is a here-now reality for life in Christ in which he protects and nourishes and takes care of his bride. There is a sweet communion with God that is altogether foreign to those outside his church. Some of us have maybe been watching outside the garden for a while. We stand kind of rather unimpressed by the nature of the flowers or the stature of the flowers that fill the beds. Ah, but the miracle of the garden is not the beauty of the plants inside it. It's the endless love of the gardener. This is why we don't find ourselves planted in the garden of Christ's church often because we stand outside and we think, I don't like the sermon. I don't like the youth pastor. I don't, broken people, flawed people. But you find, when you find yourself in the garden and you know what it is to be nourished by God on a day-by-day basis, everything changes. Suddenly those thorns or briars that you're planted next to, you see the way that God cares for them continually. And there's value there. Oh, that we too would lay hold of this protection in his merciful creativity. God finds real purpose for you and for I, thorny though we may be. May we give up our obstinance and let the Lord take care of us. He will make peace with us. Final point, the Lord's harvest. Verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. God's primary purpose for your life is to form Christ in you that he might be beautiful among the nations. 
at this time and in this place, we are in the middle of major existential crisis. In other words, we don't know what the heck is our purpose in life. We just don't know what our purpose in life is at all. We keep thinking that someone is going to get up at our funeral and with tears in their eyes exclaim, man, he had a great body. (laughs) Or, boy, he had a pretty wife. Or, did you see the Tesla? He drove a Tesla. Or, did you see how many people were in his church? I can't tell you the amount of time I waste trying to figure out if my love handles are growing. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what he's doing for us. At best, that's the story of our life. We were kindling, but God had mercy on us. And he planted us in his garden. And we're becoming part of his fruitful story. And it is way, way bigger than us. In light of Isaiah 27, 6, our eulogies might read something a little more like faithful, stuck it out in the garden, even when it triggered family trauma, was thorny, but boy, did God use them. Should have seen how he cleaned toilets. You would have thought it was Jesus' bathroom. Boy, he loved his wife through thick and thin. Didn't give up. See how the Lord's harvest sets us free from the, the expectations we put on ourselves? I find myself, I paint houses, and I often find myself, especially recently, like trying to squeeze an extra $50 out of a day. And I come home, and I'm late coming home for 50 bucks. Why? I'm late coming home. I have a wife and a baby at home that I'm being called to love. The reason why is because I think $50, I think money is what's going to make me happy and not the fact that God is being formed in my soul. This Christmas, let's be people who understand what our purpose is, right? I'm going to pray for us. It might have been a really short sermon. Sorry if it was. Um, But I'm going to pray for us and ask uh, worship team to come up. You're going to do another song. Um, Let's be people who just are different. (laughs) Um, People who, and also people who um, 
look at God's word and allow it to be what shapes us. Allow it to be what defines um, our definitions of evil, chaos, uh, our definitions of relationship or communion, um, and our definitions of purpose in life. All right? So I'm going to pray for us now. Father God, this is your, I just pray that anything that maybe I'd say that is out of line with this would just fall now, fall away. I pray your word would be by the power of the Holy Spirit just infused in every mind, body, soul in this place. We pray for your spirit to fall in new ways, that you would heal us, that you would nourish nourish us. You promise to nourish us. You promise to water us when we're feeling dry. You promise to give us... uh, purpose and community in the garden, Lord. So do that in this place, God. I pray that Ren would be a place not marked by the sheer numbers of people, but by the love of God that's just expressed in the garden beds, God. I pray it would be marked by just a hatred of evil and wickedness, Lord, that that the garden bed would not be a place where there's leviathans creeping around, Lord. We want your spirit to be what does this, God. So we ask, Holy Spirit, by the power of the cross, that you would have your way in this church and that peace would be the result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.